to the Fine Food Podcast with me, Sam Wilkin. It's a bit of a welcome back, really. We've had a bit of a break, uh, but we're back and we are in Bergamo in Northern Italy for the World Cheese Awards. Now, I'm not going to introduce uh, my interviewee this time. Um, I'm going to let him do it himself. Uh, my name is Carlos Fiescas. I'm from Mexico, but I live in the United States because I'm also an American. And um, I do three main things. One is I'm the director of the Always Cheese Coalition in the United States, which promotes raw milk cheese. I am um, the owner of Lactography in Mexico, that is a distribution company for artisanal cheeses. And now I'm also the founder of uh, the Lacteo Network, which is a um, organization that is trying to promote Latin American cheeses. So let, let's go back. Let's, let's, if you don't mind, starting early. Because you, cheese wasn't your original profession, but I'm assuming it might have been your original passion. So, so, so can you remember, was there a moment where that all began for you? Sure. Um, so, the, so to put this in context, because um, I think timing is really important here. Um, I grew up in uh, Mexico before 1994. What does that mean for people listening? It means that it's before NAFTA started. Uh, so NAFTA is a trade agreement between the Canada and the US and Mexico. And um, before that, the Mexican economy, while it was liberalized and modern, we didn't have the amount of products that we had um, from everywhere else. And so when NAFTA came into effect, it really opened. And so it was the moment that uh, a lot of cheeses from around the world started to come into to, to Mexico. And so I remember my mom um, sort of um, convincing me if I did my homework or if I you know, finished my chores, um, what she will get me is a piece of Gruyere. Uh, but it was only possible then because this cheese had started to come in. And so I had always been, uh, I had always loved cheese and I had always had this passion. Um, but because we didn't have anything other than Mexican cheeses at the beginning, uh, when all these cheeses from, from Europe started arriving, I was really interested. And so really that was the moment of passion um, that ignited it all. So that introduction to the wider world of cheese, and of course I should probably say we're at the World Cheese Awards, and in fact just over my shoulder there's roughly 3,800, I think, cheeses. Wow. <laughs> to, from all, all, every corner of the globe. Right. So uh, a rather, rather, you know, apt that we're talking about <laughs> the influx of world cheese into, into Mexico. So Gria was a, a treat for you. It was a, a reward even for, for doing your homework. Right. And so that kind of set the seed early, really. So from then, obviously, you then went on into the diplomatic service. Right. And so what, what really happened is, you know, I, I wanted to be a chef. And... Um, or maybe I didn't know that I wanted to be a chef, but I knew that I wanted to be involved in food. And when I told my dad, you know, this is what I want to do, he was like, absolutely not. Forget, like, that's not something that boys do in Mexico. You know, that's something that... What do boys do in Mexico? Right, lawyer and doctor and that kind of stuff. The professions. The professions. Sure. And, and so I... I, in starting to look for for things, I end up uh, going to the going to England actually first uh, to learn English, uh, and it it was really then that I kind of came to this point that yeah maybe chefing and you know 
working in kitchen was not the thing that I wanted to do, uh, but that I wanted to do something more sort of international. And so they, I went back to Mexico and I started uh, school and uh, you know, many paths led me to do a um, master's degree of human rights law in Ireland. Uh, and so, so already really quite global. Right, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah. It was, it, you know, it, I had the good opportunity not only to be in these places, but for someone else to pay for it. Okay. And, and, and yeah, so I, I have always had a scholarship uh, to, to do all the studying that I'm doing, that I have done. And so I went to Ireland and at, just after graduating from, um, from the Masters of Laws, um, me and my husband, now husband, moved to, um, to New York. And in New York, I was, you know, looking for a job, and uh, and I started as an intern first at the at the UN, and from there kind of move on, and you know, that as eventually becoming um, a full permanent of staff uh, for the United Nations Development Program, working in migration and development. Okay, and it was really at that moment that uh, you know the work of the UN is such important work, and sometimes is never seen what the amount of work it is. Um, and it can be really slow sometimes, and then sometimes can be really impactful. And so in working uh, at that sort of nine to five, or really nine to eight, I had a job where I had to wear a suit and a tie and all these things and all these pressures. Um, I knew that was not the life that I wanted to live for the rest of my life, and I, I, I hate ties. I try to never wear them uh, now. And so I, um, it was at that moment that I, uh, working in migration and development, I was like, a lot of this work that I'm doing for you know, Bali, uh, uh, Mali and, Man and Bangladesh and Moldova, I could be doing it in Mexico. And so that changed me, and, and I was like, what can I do with that? so that the basic principle is that you develop rural economies in the countries so that they don't create migration. Because people don't want to leave. People want to stay home. But if there's no economic opportunities, that's why they migrate, right? And so this was the idea that I was doing at the UN and then that I brought to Mexico, and that's how sort of I combined then cheese. Yeah, so that's something that really struck me because I, I, I was doing a podcast last year in Bergamo and you, you kind enough to give me five minutes while you were doing the the jury judging so the last uh, 16 um, and, and actually everybody else said you know how important it is the flavors complex and balanced and actually one of the things you almost immediately launched into talking about was the the the, the, the agricultural economic effect on on the place of the cheese that you select and actually, we've seen that for Fanhaust last year, you know, on a micro scale, the guy who created Fanhaust is now pretty much set, comfortable, can make his, you know, there aren't those kind of financial worries. So the, the impact of the World Cheese Awards, and also that all ripples out. So the guy who delivers his cheese to somewhere else, you know, so that that really kind of opened a bit of a door for me, I have to mm. say, in, in the way that cheese can be viewed it's not just this is a really delicious product for me the you know wealthy european consumer to enjoy it is it is a product that can support rural communities in the uk and in europe and all over the world and i th that was really quite an interesting moment for me i have to say i'm very happy that that had that effect um i mean this is the purpose of my life um both with the the 
work with, that we do with the coalition and Romilk and then with the work that I do for um, in, in my own companies that cheese is delicious and you know they, like I don't think you need much convincing to people um, but then I think in in our new world where where values are important and where uh, consumers are educated um, you really need to tell that other part of the story and and I th I you know this is the 10th year that I'm judging the Watches Awards and in this 10 year you know, looking back to 2009 when we there were in the Canary Islands, I can see so many changes already. Um, so that first year, the Supreme Jury was 12 people, and out of those 12 people, there were maybe nine British mm -hmm. judges. And this year, there's uh, there's 16 of us, so there's a little bit more of us, but um, there's one British judge. And you know, some people may complain, you know, like what happened? You know, why is is diversity that much important? But I, I, I what I what I think about all of this is that it is in this diversity that we find um, sort of an appeal and, and sort of a support for other ideas. And, and it is really in the diversity that all that we all become more important. Uh, and so, not only that, this year also there's. Uh, Japanese cheese is coming into the competition, Latin American cheese is coming into the competition. Now we have an American sponsor. This used to be an only European event. So it really is um, a, a world of change in 10 years. Uh, and the impact, not only at the judging tables that that has, but the, like you say, the ripple effect back home uh, where you know, the person that is producing the milk, the person that is producing cheese, the person that is delivering the cheese, now have a, a economic viability that maybe they didn't have before. And that is good for European cheeses, but it is also for um, producers of other parts of the world. And then on the other side, on the flip side, and I don't think that this is one that is thought um, that much. Um, Africa all of the continent of Africa, all of the continent of, of uh, uh, South America, not including Mexico, because Mexico is actually quite a big dairy producer, but the rest of, of Latin America, um, only produce 73% of their cheese consumption. So just by that number, I'm telling you that there is a market that needs to be supply, mm -hmm. right? Because there's more demand than supply. Mm. Where is this coming? This where is this cheese coming from? So this cheese is coming from Europe, the United States, Australia. But then there is also increasingly a um, specialization of the market. So before they maybe just block cheddar that was just arriving, and you know it can be just melted on anything, and so that's what it was. But now this diversity uh, of cheeses is really changing, and so who is taking part of that? It is really this uh, uh, specialty. Um, cheese products from, from Europe. And, and I think the World Cheese Awards have that power now as well, that not only, um, not only for making something comfortable in Norway for a producer or in France, but also having that stamp of approval really shows the buyers in Africa or the, or the buyers in Latin America that this is a quality product. Uh, and then it opens up a door mm -hmm. uh, for that exchange uh, and, and you know, for those cheeses to, to be there. And it's an economic, I mean, these are economic numbers. There's, there's, we can feel all good about it that we're supporting a rural economy, but we also, like, there's also very- The statistics back money it up. <laughs> involved yeah. in this. Yeah. Yeah. 
but that's really at the bottom. You know, the bottom line is is that nobody's giving their cheese away for free. They have to support themselves, and it's important that you know that something like this facilitates that and makes it a viable option. A large part of what you do do your work is is supporting and building up small scale cheese producers, and and I guess. Well, for, for in, in the UK, I guess that the obvious model is something like Neil's Yard Dairy back in the day, and certainly still, actually, they're still supporting. And I think Andy Swinscoe up at the Courtyard Dairy is a similar thing in, in the north of England. How important is that to you to find uh, new cheesemakers and to develop, develop the ones that are there already? So I think that there's actually... Um, there's, um, there's an important part on, on finding new cheesemakers. And the reason for that is that, um, you know, this economic uh, impact that we're talking about actually touches on more places if you develop it. Um, you know, Neil Giardieri, um started doing the, their program and their big program with, with Stilton. <laughs> Uh, which is great, and you know everyone eats Stilton, and you can see the crazy lines out of Neil's Yara on Christmas. You know people buying their their cheese for Christmas, uh, and that's great. And I'm very happy that that's happening for Stilton. Uh, now let's spread that wealth across, right? And so tr let's try to do it to other products. And this is why it, it, uh, so much of my work also has to do with raw milk, because um, raw milk. Well, we want to think and it's true, that it is a more traditional product and sort of it calls back a, an earlier history of us. It really now is an indicator of quality in the future. Why? Because you really need to be spending a lot of money in animal husbandry practices and animal feed practices to have a milk that is going to be worth keeping raw, and then developing the cheese. And so now the conversation that we are starting to have is like, how is actually raw milk an indicator not only of quality, but of good food safety practices that are very modern? Responsible agriculture, right. in a sense. I mean, it, it, the way you're speaking there reminds me, I was speaking to... Um, uh, a winemaker actually from uh, Mendoza in Argentina talking about uh, how they make their wine and he's one of the few raw natural winemakers making Malbec and he's very much uh, into the idea of my wine is made in the vineyard so you know there is no interaction it's an expression of what's on the vine but to achieve that you need to be in there with your secateurs you know pretty much 24 hours a day just watching for any blight or looking after and nurturing these vines and I guess it's exactly the same in raw milk cheese is that if your pasture is not looked after properly and sustainably maintained if your animals are not happy and not looked after then the milk is not going to be of a sufficient quality to make a cheese of any description actually right I, I mean I think that that if the more that we understand about the microbes that make the cheese um, we're really talking not only about uh, you know the the sort of added microbes of you know mold and yeast and things to turn a blue cheese blue, or, but also the microbes that are in the soil and how a good cheesemaker is actually shepherding those microbes from the soil through the grass through the animal to cheese, right? And so if you have poor quality soil, you have poor quality cheese, and 
and and when you start thinking about this, it completely changes the way that you think about the, about cheese and why it's important to to support this. And so, just to give you an, an example of this, um, and how climate change is, you know wrecking habit with everything that that, that is happening um, the so the high um, in in the high of the alps you know there's uh, snow accumulation during the winter and you know this is a normal process and then when the spring comes that ice and snow melts and you know runs down the mountains and that's what creates the luscious uh, green pastures of switzerland but what happens when there's not cold anymore. You don't have the same amount of um, ice and snow over there. Uh, then in spring, you don't have the same amount of water running down. So you don't have the same pastures. And so there is a change in pasture in the Alps that now the Swiss have to manage because, you know, if you could sustain, I don't know, 50,000 heads of, of cattle, now you can because there's less space, right? And so, and so the idea how they have responded is with this idea of the alpash, of things that are not only of animals that are eating out in, in the Alps, but also the cheese is now being made in the Alps to respond to this. And so Gruyere may be a very good example for the future of how producers are slowly trying to accommodate for this climate change uh, changes and you know like this example i can tell you so many that are are part of what is happening um and and, and to go back to your question why are we supporting new small producers well because these small new producers are the ones that are paying attention to this because big producers at the end of the day if they already are um uh, producing a big quantities, you know, there is very easy to cut corners and just go and make whatever cheese. And so it is in looking for these smaller cheeses that, you know, you're looking for people that are closer to production methods and paying more attention and then really, you know, giving an, an incentive to, to the producers for them to keep producing because if no one is eating it, people just stop making what they're Well, making. and it's interesting as well, we're talking about climate change. There seems to be more, it was something that I spoke to Mary Quick about uh, actually beginning of last year and there seems to be more and more being published and actually films being made about the concept of pasture land being being the change for good, you know, because of this contradiction that, that we're all sort of led to believe that the dairy industry is destroying the planet. And actually the repasturing of, of you know, agricultural area as a, as a carbon sink, I guess, mm -hmm. is really interesting as a concept. So there's, but that can only work with what you're describing is that responsible agriculture, because I guess the bigger scale people, they want to know, they know what their end product needs to look like. Mm -hmm. And they'll kind of just make the process work. So whatever's happening at, at one end, I'm pointing to a scale on the table, mm -hmm. uh, one end is happening here, as long as that remains constant. Whereas the smaller scale, people who are physically on, on the ground, they, they have to respond to the vagaries of of nature, in a sense. So there's, there's that, it's much more intuitive. And so what do you say then to the... To, to the the people who pasteurize because we're going to try a lot of cheeses today that are not necessarily from large-scale producers but there are people who pasteurize and i guess there's the difference is you've got your farmhouse cheeses who generally don't mm -hmm. because they have control over the pasture mm -hmm. and then you've got your artisan i guess cheeses mm -hmm. that buy the milk in how can they move more towards the the, the, the method that you're talking about right 
And I think that, you know, disco is a question that always comes up, uh, doing so much work about uh, with raw milk cheese. And so, because I didn't have an answer for this, what we decided is in 2017, the Cheese Coalition uh, ran um, a global survey of producers. And so we translated this survey into five different languages, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and uh, Russian on top of English. Uh, we ran it across the globe and we got cheese producers from around the world to tell us. Wow. And what we learned is is I started looking at the numbers and you know we had a research scientist from MIT looking at these numbers and what was so shocking is that most producers they responding the 45 percent is that the reason why they don't make raw milk cheese is because they're afraid of their regulators so we have failed these producers from the regulatory side. We have created a system of fear everywhere that the regulators are going to come and shut you down for making raw milk cheese. And that is the worst part of neoliberalism that we can act on. Because if we have moved the responsibilities of the state back to the producer and it is uh, a cost of entry to the producer to, to do all these trainings and to do everything without any support from the government, then we have failed what the government is supposed to be doing. And I know this sounds really Marxist, and, um, I, I, but what I always want to keep going back to is that these people that are producing in, um, in, in rural places, you know, they're, it's people that are not migrating to cities, that are not creating a clot in cities, that are producing the food that we're all eating. And we need to find a way that we can still support them. And if it's a regulatory issue because they know that they can produce with good quality raw milk, but they're just afraid, we need to start looking at that. And so this survey told us this. And I mean, we have other, other information on the website about what we also f find out. But... I really want to stress this point that um, people are ready to produce, but they need to have the, the certainty that there's going to be the consumer on the other side. And so that's what so much of our work has to do uh, now at the coalition, which is making sure that you as the end consumer understand the benefits of raw milk cheese and they don't have to be all about probiotic or or flavor but they also have economic and cultural aspects and so if you take care of that and you every you know seven pounds that you spend on cheese three of those go to raw milk cheese producers you're telling the raw milk cheese producer your product's value keep doing it and there'll be more producers that will match your 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 demand right with their supply um so i i think that that we have a lot of work to do but i think the consumers and the savvy consumers are ready um a, a good example is for example the cheeses that are coming right now from Brazil and Mexico, uh, uh, they, you know, there's wonderful raw milk cheese made in Brazil, wonderful cheese made with raw milk in Mexico, uh, and the European Union just didn't let them in. And we can only bring pasteurized cheeses. So it's like we're here competing. I'm very happy to compete, and we, we really thank the Watches Awards for, for opening our space. But we're competing with a hand tie in our backs, mm. right? Like I'm not bringing you my most exquisite products. Uh, and not because these producers cannot produce it, just 
they weren't allowed, so they had to pasteurize before they could send them. Uh, yeah. and, and so it's not their fault. We're just complying with what the regulators say. So the, the future, because really I'd like to know what, what your vision is, because I feel like you're, you're clearly working towards something. It, you know, it's a process, but there is a, a final goal. And, and is that... I mean, what, what, how would you describe it? There sounds like there's a level of, de, not deregulation, but educating the regulators, if you like, in, into the benefits on a, on a wider scale, but maybe in your own words. I mean, um, I can speak more uh, about the situation in the United States, but uh, some of this will make a, a good reference to the, to the situation that is happening in Australia and that is happening in uh, other parts of the, of the globe. Um, the... In the United States, the regulation that deals with raw milk cheese uh, is called the 60-day rule. So you make something with raw milk and it has to age for 60 days before you can sell it. The, this rule has been in effect for 61 years. In the past 30 years, in food safety, we have had leaps of science, new science. So to have a regulation that is 61 years old doesn't even account for the knowledge that we have. Right? And so I don't want less regulation. I just want regulation that keeps up with what we know today. Right? And so if we can do that for cryptocurrencies and we can do that for you know, social media, um, you know, breaking monopolies and all these things, we can also do it for food safety. We can also um, modernize our regulations to really account for the risk that exists right now. Listeria didn't really exist as a pathogen 61 years ago. And now we have to deal with, with outbreaks of listeria in, in, in cheeses, but the, uh, but the regulation doesn't account for it. So we're, again, playing in a, in a, in a field that is 61 years old, right? Um, so in the, in the United Kingdom, it's different because the, the cheesemaker, the specialty cheesemakers... Cheesemakers Association. Cheesemakers Association has had such a great vision of creating its own um, sort of standards of identity and their own trainings and everything, and then going to the government. And then the government of uh, England really responding in a good way of like, this is useful to us, um, um, that there, you know, there's a little bit of movement. The other part of what I see the future is I would love to stop seeing people um, making cheeses that they think they're going to fit in the marketplace. I understand there's an economic um, conversation here that, you know, if, you know, Gouda is a good cheese to sell, then I'm going to make Gouda. Um, it makes economic sense. But if producers on the other side decided that they're going to make a cheese that, regardless of what it ends up being called, but that more clearly reflects your place of production, we will have a diversity of cheeses, of new cheeses, that matches the sort of old world of French cheese, right? Like, you cannot think that one town to the next will change cheese, but it was because it was reflecting, you know, how the sun hits you in the morning, basically. And, and I think that is what is really exciting about this, and, and what I think the Watches Awards is really has done well, right? Because it's bringing all these cheeses from everywhere. And so then you get to see like cheeses that we never see and new producers that we never see. And so it's bringing this to light. And, and, um, and so people will recognize me probably from the picture from last year where I'm holding a big 
egg-shaped cheese. And people, everyone asks me, what is that cheese? And I, j I still don't know, and I will try to find out for people. But uh, what I think is, is fascinating is that it sparks an interest, right? And, and people are excited to learn about this. And, and so uh, I think that's part of our job too, is like sparking that interest. And, and I hope that you know, people listening uh, are excited and can go and buy a piece of Romeo cheese today. That was Carlos Yescas. Um, I love talking to Carlos. It, it, it always kind of opens my mind. I think cheese, we often get a bit tunnel vision about cheese. It's a beautiful, delicious thing on the plate and it's there for joy and enjoyment and pleasure. But actually the influence of these products going across the globe can be massive for the individual that makes it and the community that benefits from that individual's success. So the work that Carlos does is not only hugely valuable, but also, uh, I don't know, opens up the world of cheese for me, which I, I love, I really love. Uh, so um, join us again soon for the next Fine Food Podcast. The Fine Food Podcast is produced by Salomon and Michael Lane of Fine Food Digest. It's edited and presented by me, Sam Wilkin. If you want to know more about the Guild of Fine Food, go to gff.co.uk and check out Salomon Sam on Twitter at